Welcome back to The Drop. This is Michael Saramella here to talk about everything that happened this week in surfing. And boy, do we have a huge episode for you. First and foremost, Buck is going to come on to talk about all this week's news. And it includes a new episode of How Surfers Get Paid. It's the second season. And this might be the best episode yet. Sam McIntosh is going to come on with Danny Johnson to explain it a bit further. We also have a chat with the winner of our WSL CEO Fantasy Draft. And they're going to come on and tell us a little bit about what's wrong with the surf industry and how the WSL can right their ship. We're also going to talk about a new stab edit of the year entry, along with a lot of other great things. After that, Stace is going to come on, and he and I are going to chat about everything that went down at J-Bay this past week. So yeah, huge week of surfing and a lot to talk about. So let's drop in. Oh boy, Michael, 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 Michael. I have to ask you one question. Have you ever been to Jeffrey's Bay, South Africa? Never, no. Do you feel like maybe this is karma? <laughs> so you think i'm being punished do you feel like this is the universe giving you a sign that i need to go there or need to never go there that you need to go to have a deeper relationship and be able to be a better betting shaman yeah it's true I, <laughs> there's clearly a lack of something uh knowledge culture um just appreciation for fine surfing i suppose Anyway, rather than just um, celebrate your gambling losses, which you always should do, especially I, uh, if you invest, I feel like you should celebrate when you lose in that too. I think I got a Bitcoin when I was at its all-time high. That was cool. So that's on me. Um, <laughs> you get a full breakdown with Stace on the cusp. So let's do some drop things and get into the news. How Surfers Get Paid, Season 2, Episode 1 is here and i know we're about to hear from danny johnson and sam mcintosh danny is gonna be picking sam's brain about this episode and the series but you know you kind of just hear about this guy from a few different people and it's kind of builds up to him in a room it's fucking crazy it got it was one of those ones where within the first 30 seconds you're like okay yep i'm in like i'm not going fucking anywhere so let's talk about the difference between season one and season two. The biggest difference, I think, is season one, we didn't really know what we we're doing and we didn't really know how it was going to be received. And so it was like a, like it was a big gamble to see whether it was actually connected with our audience. Um, and I think we skimmed over too many storylines. Like you kind of chopped up so many different voices and there's like 40 voices just in one episode. Mm. Um, and so this time around, it's just we slow it down a little bit. You kind of go narrow and deeper on the stories and don't just skim over topics. Yeah, but the first season was almost literally addressing the title of the series. It had, you had to set that context because a lot of people don't know how surfers get paid. And so that context had to be there. Now that it's there and that foundation's laid, obviously always the anecdotes and those jumping off points are the bit that grab people that are most... Um, most entertaining, which is essentially kind of what the whole second season is, is just those those stories. Yeah, I think most people now like it's like it should be question mark. How do surfers get paid? <laughs> okay. Wait, wait, well, you think people don't know, or they do know? I think people who are pro surfers now don't know how to get paid. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah that's because it's point. got become so bleak. Yeah, how um, how do I fucking get paid? Is the yeah, yeah, which is is super sad. But I guess that's not that we you don't find the answer to that question here. Although there are people now who are thriving, who would never have thrived, say, in the glory days of pro surfing. They, they exist in the perfect time. They're like Nathan Florence's, Jamie O'Brien's. If they had been with the traditional kind of hierarchy of media, yeah. it wouldn't be nearly as fruitful as it is right now. So can you just give us a list of some of the topics that are covered in season two? Okay, it's, um, I'm not going to be able to give you a very good answer. We went and you kind of go and put like a shovel in the ground and you do these interviews, you don't really know what's underneath. And then you kind of, if you find something, then you kind of drill and start mining. That's kind of how it works. So the, what we tried to do with the, in the first season, I think the best story was the Geordie Smith half a million dollars being sued by Billabong. And so we moved that one right up to the front. And the biggest story this season is um, something we've insufferably titled The Best Surf Story Never Told. And uh, that, that that heads up this first episode. But the way we've been doing it is we just make an episode. As soon as we've done it, we send it live. Then we get, get on to the next one. So we don't have a clear – we don't have – we have a release date or any clear path and the other ones drop, but that's the first episode. 
And that title may seem a little clickbaity or you, you describe it as insufferable, but I heard you say the other day that this is truly the best surf story you ever heard, you've ever heard. And you've been around. So we've been trying to get this story for, since it happened, it was sort of always a rumor. And then we sort of chased it and bubbled up and bubbled down. It didn't really go anywhere. And then we've uncovered it. We've got like every good story needs two or three people in there because there's always multiple versions of events. And this one is just, I don't know, just, it kind of plays on surface heartstrings. Like it has, it creates an emotional response in you and you hear one person speak on it and you're like, oh, I get their point of view. And then you hear another person speak on it and you kind of toggle back and forth between what your opinion on it is. And, um, I just don't think there's a surfer out there who doesn't have an opinion on it. And what you're discussing is the pinnacle for any surfer, I think, regardless of skill, is a wave that breaks on sand in warm water that barrels. Like that's kind of the perfect recipe. Mm. And that's what you're discussing. It's not like some heavy reef break in like a hooded suit, like five mil hooded suit. You're talking about board shorts, sand, barrels. It's like just the, I don't know. Everyone has an opinion on that, I think. Who surfs? Yeah. And this story, it's not just that that aspect, like the wave. It's like the discovery. There's the commerce element. There's an ethical element. And then there's a personal story in there that the whole episode is hinged around that is being completely untold in, in any real way. Like it kind of has everything. And one of my favorite parts is like you said, there's, there's all the all the people featured in this film are just all fucking heavy hitters. Like all the people who, when they talk about uh, surfing, they just have, you know, they have everyone's respect, and and then two thirds of the uh, away, two thirds of the way um, through the film, like Led's just sitting there, just out of nowhere. It's the best, like, because you're, you're always like, fuck yeah, now Nathan Fletcher's, like, oh shit, oh Billy Camper, and then there's all these just like end boss level kind of surf lords, and then all of a sudden Led's just sitting there, who's now your new best friend. <laughs> it was so sick getting to uh, to meet Led, go to his house. It was cool. He had like, it was a Saturday morning, it was early, he had to get there early and he had people coming near the train and he just pulled up stumps and uh, said, I'm going to go make you guys one of my lead coffees from scratch. It was really cool. It was a good experience. Okay. So we don't want to give away too much about this first episode because we want people to go and watch it. What, what else can we say? It's the greatest surf story never told. It involves someone selling a wave. What else are we willing to leak out to any potential podcast listeners i would love people to have the same experience i had sitting there hearing this story word for word verbatim just going oh my god mm. oh my god yeah uh that was like that that was the most illuminating part to me you're just sitting there hearing these stories just and people were sharing them so candidly and um Hopefully you can experience that by if you watch the series. Yeah, watch totally. this first step. Okay, let's end with some of the other topics that are covered in this in this season. Uh, we're deep. We're going really hard on surfboards, uh, and then how much people are ride to, uh, how much people are paid to ride surfboards, and what that looks like. How many surfboards you can order? That part's really interesting. Um, we talk about the rise of the women. Uh, that's been. That one's been really cool. There's a bunch of new stories emerging um, from this sort of golden era that we're just going to shoehorn in just because the stories are so good. Uh, I just wrote a little subscriber newsletter um, about one with Taj and getting in a black SUV with four executives and he negotiated the biggest deal of his life. No agent, no manager, no lawyers, no accountants, no, no, no one, way. just him on his own. And so you were, you were hanging with him at that point. Was he just pressing you for like, what do you reckon about this? Or is he just, is he just a mad dog and went in there? Uh, with no advice. Well, I thought I was like the voice of reason in his camp. I'd never heard of his story. Oh, wow. We went to Namibia the other day and he was telling me, I was like, what? Wow. Yeah. And, uh, so that was, um, when we got back, I was like, Hey, can we get that story? He's like, yeah, no worries. And then, you know what it's like on camera. He's just so likable and yeah, electric and cosmic and whatever else. Uh, so yeah, that, that one's a really cool story. Uh, and it's got a pretty heavy twist to it as well. S-E-O-T-Y, 15 minutes of ludicrous waves you really wouldn't want to take on the head. Accurate title, the waves are ludicrous. I would not want to take any of them on the head. Um, and Miguel Blanco, who, pull me up if I'm wrong here, Mikey, but I think was the most kind of calm presence on 
stab highway a thousand percent i mean he yeah he literally is like just the cruisiest like has a smile on his face like basically baked onto his face which is probably a fair characterization um and yeah just seems like the most like mellow happy-go-lucky dude so just yeah never in a bad mood i mean except that one time what time (laughs) when hugo tackled him oh yeah in the beginning actually that was uh that was bad that was first minute of the program and he uh he got tackled and wasn't thrilled about that but otherwise you'd see him like you know 48 hours into having to eat only iberian ham everybody else is saying that their stomach just cannot process it anymore it's horrible they can't even eat because they're not going to touch the ham he's just living that and he's just kind of like hey guys like smiling happy it's kind of in this state of zen um and it turns out he goes on really insane waves i mean i knew this about him i've seen him surf around here i've seen you know the footage of him and big days around here but holy shit he took it to a new level in this s-e-o-t-y stab out of the year entry called tropical popsicle what was your read on it mikey you may have known this about miguel i mean i knew obviously that he like surfed heavy waves he's from portugal and whatnot but i didn't know that he surfed waves of this caliber this well um you know, starting with his first wave, like the first real wave of the edit when the edit really kicks in is this crazy wave at Greenbush where he's like so deep and just like bouncing on the foam ball, flies out of it. He goes and surfs these like psycho bodyboard Nate Florence slabs in Australia. He ends up at the end going to Jaws, like just casually stroking into waves that are probably way bigger than anything else he's ever surfed before in his life. He's like, he actually reminds, when when I saw him surfing Jaws, it literally reminded me of Chicken Joe. Like, just happy to be there, just, like, cruising. Like, yeah, sure, I'll just drop into this 50-footer, no worries. <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of the, the vibe I get from him. Um, but, yeah, really cool guy, really good surfer. And one last thing about Miguel before we go on to the next topic is that we went to his house during Highway, which is located in Ericera, and it literally overlooks Cave. Like, you can see the Cave from his house, um, which I think is a pretty cool thing to have but also really terrifying because then there's just like no excuses like you you know when it's breaking all the time so you kind of like are forced to to go there i suppose but yeah really mellow dude crazy fucking surfer and this edit impressed me a lot honestly i i didn't know what to expect from a 15 minute miguel blanco edit and i found myself like stuck to it the entire time legitimate contender The stab interview with Pat O'Connell. Mike, you alluded to this last episode. You said you were going to come to the table with some stuff that proved me wrong about Eric Logan. And now here we are. We're talking about the Pat O'Connell interview. We're going to hear from him in a bit. But first, give us an overview. The reason that I called Pat was because he actually won our WSL CEO fantasy draft that we ran. So we put out a piece where we laid out, I think, 13 people in the surf world that we thought would be maybe a good next leader for the WSL. And we left it to our STAB premium members to vote. And Pat was the like far out winner, actually, which surprised him. And when I told him, he was like, no way. I was like, yeah, and guess who was number two? And he said, who? And I said, Kelly Slater. And he was so excited. He was so happy. He's like, no fucking way. I finally got him. That was the first time I think he's ever beat Kelly. So we called up Pat to see, one, if he would be interested in the job, and two, where he thinks the WSL should be going next and basically how they could improve their brand and their offering and and their whole operation. Okay, so I know that you're in an awesome position right now, probably something that you've always dreamt of is like running a company and being surrounded by all these amazing people, John, um, Bob, and everybody else in that cohort. But if this job was offered to you, would you want it to run the WSL? I wouldn't say that I would be jumping to be the CEO. What I would say is, hey, if there's a group of people that want to, uh, and I can help, kind of get it to a place where it feels a little bit more authentic for people, I would be interested in that. But I'm not necessarily going, hey, I, I'm not looking for a job change at the moment, but I do like the idea of being involved in the future of surfing. During the pandemic, there's more surfers that started surfing ever. And we've done a terrible job of assimilating, like making surfing, like keeping them going and providing either product or uh, inspiration to keep to keep going. 
I think, but, and I guess this is kind of where, you know, this is where my head goes is there, there does right now with the split in the industry and where there's, you know, all these licensed brands, I think you need to find a way to kind of center this thing again and make it feel elevated. And, you know, surfing is the ultimate outdoor sport, but like outdoor activity is trending high, but somehow we've missed that. You know, when I was a kid, it was like uh, Michael Thompson, you know, at Gotcha and, uh, you know, uh, Sean Stussy and Bob Hurley doing Billabong and Danny Kwok and those guys that quit. Like it was, I mean, shit, back in the day, we used to, it was competitive against the brands. You know, we were, I mean, uh, our guy Jeb, uh, who was our (laughs) general Jeb at the U.S. Open, um, handcuffed a... uh, a Volcom stone to the pier you know, <laughs> um, when he was trying to take over our, the U.S. Open. Um, you know, we uh, it used to be competitive. It was fun and it was brash and it was it was young. And I don't, I'm not sure that's what people are getting out of the industry today. Where you sort of said is like, hey, there's a there's an industry opportunity to sort of change things up is kind of where I was going. Um, like. Hey, it's a train wreck the way the tour used to run where everybody had a, um, you know, a individual events. But it also created competition and built it up. The industry today with a bunch of licensed brands is not nice to do that um, and, and doesn't work. But um, but the idea is pretty, is is cool. And, you know, the core consumer has to buy in and, and help push this and be excited and so what in your experience like what are the qualities that you think a ceo of the wsl would really need to excel like more than anything it's the vision and just going hey here's a five-year plan i know that the team those guys were trying to work on that but just and and transparency i think bugs was amazing at it back in the day you know, he had a dream, he, and he brought people into his idea, which was the dream tour, which was everybody was dying to have. You know, I think that vision and, you know, bringing people along, I think that's the most important part. What are we supposed to do different? I don't know. What What are brands supposed to do different? Like, I, that's what I get hung up on. And also, what what is so... What's, off, what's wrong with the WSL's tone again? Well, I think that most listeners would agree that there's a tone issue with the WSL. And that comes from obviously having people at the helm who are not really rooted into surfing, as it were. So that's one of the issues that he addresses. And as far as the brands go, he made an interesting point that I think was probably leaning toward, like he obviously right now, he is the CEO at Florence which is a small brand relative to a lot of the other brands in the surf world growing, certainly, but a small brand still. And the point that he makes is that with the big brands back in the day, they were all independent. And with that independence came a healthy competition between one another. And that meant that they were pushing one another. And at the time, they were also the ones that were funding and operating the webcasts and the events. So that led to them, you know, going to really interesting locations, trying to outdo one another, trying to put on bigger and better webcasts, bringing in interesting people, anything that they could do to get a leg up on the competition. Um, And what that resulted in is regardless of who did better out of all those brands, the surf fans, the people viewing were the real winners. And right now we have a lot of big brands that are owned um, by like umbrella companies, brands that are licensed out and brands that are not run by surfers anymore. So I think what he's kind of getting at is there's going to be a resurgence of the smaller brands and that kind of they can lead that charge and they can get the core surfer back into surf brands because core surfers largely stopped wearing surf apparel because it was then tied to this idea of people who are not surfers creating it, which I think is something that we find distasteful. So it's kind of a circular thing. If the smaller brands emerge and really represent themselves and represent surfing in a way that we align with will be more engaged to buy their products. And with that, the WSL can adopt some of that same mentality and bring the core back while also bringing in new people because surfing will be considered cool again as it was when Quicksilver and Billabong kind of reached their heights. So that's a really long way of trying to explain our conversation, but that's kind of the, the conclusion that Pat came to. 
Long read the life of Mikala Jones. Wow, this is exactly as it's described. It is a long read. Our site clocks it at 15 minutes, going off of average word per minute reading time. It's up there, I think, 6,000 words. It was written by Chris Bins, who, as you're about to learn, took a considerable amount of time to write it, called many people, and we've got him on the line to break it down for us. Uh, yeah, I completely blew the brief. I just went back and saw your first email the other day that was like, how do you feel about a thousand to fifteen hundred words? And uh, yeah, this thing blew out to three times that, but it was just one of those things once I started sort of digging in and speaking to more and more people, there was just so much that I didn't want to leave on the cutting room floor. Um, and obviously it's an incredibly important subject. Mikala's much loved. Lots of people have fantastic relationships with him all over the world. Um, and I definitely had a lot to do with Mikala when I was spending a lot of time up in Bali. And um, yeah, it got to a point where it just, I, I couldn't turn back basically. And it, it blew out into the 15 minute read that it is, which uh, yeah, isn't easy to edit either because you go back to the beginning and you're like, oh, here we go again. But uh yeah, it was amazing. I, I spoke to lots and lots of people. Um, i got to give a shout-out to Jed Smith and the Swellians. They they dropped an amazing podcast with Mikala, which was easily one of the best interviews or profiles um, anywhere, and, and I sort of gleaned a lot from that. It's funny, I went through a lot of the stories that I've written with Mikala over the years for Surfing Life or Red Bull or whoever, and... He's just such a quietly spoken, understated man that I was reading through all of these notes and not getting a whole lot from him. And then once I started talking to people, they all kept saying the same. And like Ty Graham was saying in Bali, he was, you know, so loved by locals, probably because he doesn't say much. Like he just sits back and he's a quiet guy and he always lets his act actions do all of his talking. And then the stories that I was getting from people like Ty Graham... I spoke to Mick Fanning, I spoke to Ted Grambo, who was, you know, the photographer on the search forever and remembered Makala as sort of a skinny 16-year-old first going to the Galapagos and the Maldives and these kind of places. Uh, had a good chat with Dylan Longbottom, who he spent a lot of time in uh, West Java hunting out deadly right-hand closeouts with. I spoke to Anthony Walsh about just the impact of Makala's GoPro work both on GoPro the company and just the two of them as as sort of you know these two masters of the GoPro and just the way they used to go on trips together and compare notes and, and this kind of stuff and yeah it was really great the, the more I spoke to people the more I kept finding more and more stuff that I just thought was important to share that you know the the image of Makala is this good looking dude in the most pristine incredible tropical tubes you've ever seen but there was so much more to him than that obviously he was an incredibly devoted husband and father um and and his kids were sort of his pride and joy and you know talking to guys like dylan longbottom who also has daughters of the same age they were sharing moments sitting out on boats in the middle of nowhere surfing these deadly waves hours from medical help and they'd be talking about their daughters, you know, kind of questioning how sensible it was to be doing what they were doing. And, you know, it wasn't like any of Mikala's surfing was reckless. There was, it was always calculated. His whole career was calculated. Like, you know, he was almost a DIY pro surfer. He was never the most sponsored guy ever, but he just made it work. You know, Ty Graham used to talk about just how he had it down pat in Indo with just loading up the car and the trailer and the jet ski and driving for two or three days if that was what it took. You know, he could travel cheaply because he he was doing it all himself and half the reason he was just doing the GoPro stuff was so he could travel without a crew, you know, just take off with maybe one other person and, and, and be off at, you know, the drop of a hat. Nate Lawrence said the same thing. He said, you know, if he knew there was a swell out there, he'd get a text from, from Mikala and he'd look at his phone and be like, all right, this means we're taking off in like the next couple of hours. I, I gotta go.
Over 1,000 people told us their height, weight, and favorite board dimensions. Here's what we learned. We put this survey out there a while back, just asking for that information to try to find some averages. And anytime you're getting data, that comes with, um, you know, you have to rely on people to be honest about the world that they live in. And so, first of all, Mitchell Shepard did a great job on this. It was a lot of data to go through, and he really helped make sense out of it all. Um, but one thing I have to call out from the beginning, it's a line that he actually wrote in there. It just says, hats off to the 56 to 65-year-olds who are self-reportedly the most talented cohort of surfers going around, with 94% of them rating their ability as advanced or above. Um, <laughs> that's funny. I mean, that that wasn't the that wasn't the like there wasn't that many people that answered that were that age um but those who did just said that they fucking rip <laughs> so honestly shout out to that crew well i think there are so many takeaways from this i think the takeaway from that specific point is that you just get so much more arrogant when you get older which is just fucking amazing like old guys just don't give a fuck kind of explains everything yeah <laughs> That's, that's why they're so staunch out there. I mean, also, so the the first graphic that you'll see in this piece when you open it up on the site, it really gives you a great overview of everything that we're going to talk about. But like, just to your point on self-reporting, the average height across all these different age groups is 5'11". So this goes against the fact that one, people tend to shrink about two inches when they get older. And two, that the average height in both America and Australia, the two major hubs where these responses were coming in from is five nine so we're led to believe that stab premium members are on average two inches taller than the average person which is so insane because these are all anonymously submitted it's like what's even the point of lying but i guess if you've just been telling yourself that you're this big man your whole life you just got to keep it going um, so th there is going to be a little bit of skewed data just because it is self-reported however there's a lot of really insightful data as well um Another one that I found interesting is people ride Futures Fins more often as they get older, presumably because they're more likely to have an Allen key around. Mm, yeah, good point. Good point. You're definitely, you collect a lot of them as time goes on, those Allen keys. Um, I think the most interesting thing for me in here, I mean, actually the whole thing is interesting. I don't think there is, I've never seen anything where a thousand people gave this information before and had it broken down like this. So Mitch has a line there about like, this is perhaps like the biggest open study of surfboards in history. And I just don't think I've ever seen anything else that could fit that description. So as weird as it is, it's just an email we sent out a while ago. Um, it's kind of true. And so I think the real, the real good stuff for me is, yeah, just getting a sense of those averages and getting a sense for like, the average height, like person height to board height percentage we have in there, and then pound or kilo per liter. So there's like, you can kind of break it down and see how much like somebody your weight, how much foam they'd normally be riding based on their skill level. And um, the height thing was really interesting too to me because I remember like it was from a magazine back, it was before I ever did anything in surf media. I was just a, a teenager probably, but I remember there was like a surfer surfing back in the day and it was like a surfboard issue. And I mean, I think it was still, I think it was maybe Brit Merrick or somebody. It was a high, high level shaper at the time with a quote that even put like big pull text, made it big and said like, and this is when John John was like the darling of, you know, he's a 12 year old that could just do everything. Um, said like, John John's going to be riding a 5'9 when he's 5'10 and it was just like the boldest thing anybody could say at that time you know and it was past already past like the 90s crazy super super long era but it's still bold to think that like somebody at that level would be riding a board an inch shorter than them and now we have this and that is essentially everybody yeah well no but it's not everybody so that's actually one of the things that i i think we could have looked into a little bit deeper so what this tells us is that the average surfer rides a board that is 97% of their height, which means that their board's shorter than them. However, it would have been really interesting to look at this across a human height scale 
because I would wager that people that are on the shorter side tend to ride boards that are longer than them, as I do, and as a lot of people in the CT do. And guys that are taller tend to ride boards that are significantly shorter than them, um, as we also see on the CT. So it's a bit of a spectrum. Of course, when you're talking about averages, it's you can take away really big insights, but also you maybe like miss a few of the finer detail points. But most of the people that I know that are shorter do tend to ride boards that are a little bit longer. Well, all I know is I don't think Creed McTaggart entered because I think he would have skewed the whole thing off. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So there's seriously, like I learned so much from this piece. Um, to your point, the volume to weight thing is really interesting. It turns out I ride boards that are below the average leaderage for my weight. Uh, I don't know what that means exactly, but that's something I guess to take note of. Uh, and you can figure out for yourself where you sit in this field of averages as well. Yeah. And also, we have this data from the entire 2023 CT as well. Um, everybody who qualified from the start of the year to get a bigger sample size. And Mitch is currently going through that. So he's going to pull some really interesting insights out of there. I think at that point, too, because, you know, it's. 50 people roughly not a thousand you could really see who stands out as an outlier in terms of these like who's riding way more foam per their weight who's riding way longer boards for their weight or for their height so that's coming too and i think when that comes out it'll be good to kind of compare the two to to see how the everyday people stack up against the elites anyway almost time for a surf sin mikey but a few more things to call out uh, we had some great J-Bay coverage. I J-Bay yesterday was fucking incredible. I couldn't walk away from my TV. That was awesome. I thought Pedro Ramos did a great job covering it, so thank you, Pedro. Ooh, another public service announcement. Another Chapter 11 film, CH11 TV, Out of the Rafters, went live this week. Um, that's just a public service announcement. You're not going to miss that. It comes with a kind of wild story about Dane walking into a glass door in Mexico that uh, led to a very, very severe, almost life-threatening injury. Um, that was a lot, a lot of blood. And then he was surfing in a swim cap, like when Mark Lacamere uh, cut himself at the World Juniors in Narrabeen, I believe 2014. I have no idea why I've retained this information. Did he win? Oh, I think he did. did was he a World Junior champ? Dane was surfing way better in that swim cap than he was before it. Yeah, um, I mean, I think when you're swim cap and the water guy, you kind of got that chip on your shoulder, cap on the head. Mm. You, It's a little bit more fuck you. So, yeah, Dan was ripping that thing, and I believe Mark Lacamara at least won something. Um, and I really, please, <laughs> if you have any bit of scientific fact that I could use to put in my brain instead of that, uh, please let me know because Mark Lacamara 2014 has been in my head for as over a decade now and i really wish that something else would come along and replace it and uh, make me a better which reminds us human being that the the better beer quiz is live uh now week six is that right it might be the final week so if you haven't won your case of beer yet go share your knowledge there may not be a question about mark lockamer in it but i can assure you that there is a question about the 1986 op pro riots so if you know about that get in there you could win yourself a case of better beer Ooh, a similar note i think the question that i'm most proud of adding this week was one about somebody getting arrested for um wielding a weapon that they had won at a qs event which as far as I'm aware, is the only time that's happened in history. And um, I was very... Pr that was incredible. I had no idea about that. You didn't know that story. You got me on that one. That was great. Did you have to look it up? Just to make sure I wasn't... Because it's, it's out there in the news. No, I believe you. I believe everything I read. Okay, okay. Go check all that out. There's a ton on the site right now. A ton more coming. Speaking of what's coming, Stab Highway Europe presented by Monster Energy. Oh my goodness. Dropping on Thursday. Uh, we have kept our editors captive. They have not seen sunlight. It's midsummer in some places. They have not seen sunlight. Um, it's at a point where they might, they, we have to wean them back into society. It's, uh, they might bite and we're not sure. But for you, that means episode one is coming. It's going to be a doozy. And we've also got a party coming. We have a, quite a few parties coming on that. So just keep an eye out because we're going global. We're going to Oscar. We're probably going to Arisera. I think we're going hunting, Huntington, um, Stab Highway, Europe, presented by Monster, Worldwide.
Let's get to the scene. Pikey Buck, I have a friend who is in need of a penance to start his healing journey. This friend has generally always worked part-time. Currently has nine white high-performance shortboards with three more on the way. But has managed to come up with excuses for every swell that we have had here on the Gold Coast for the past 12 months. He's avoided dawn patrols. He turns up maybe one in 20 sessions when he says he's going to be there. And I feel he's lost his way. So, Brandon Buckley, go fuck yourself. And hopefully, you can start him on his healing journey. Thanks, boys. Bye. Ah. You hate to see it. I, well, okay, well, first and foremost, how do we feel about people submitting sins on behalf of another? I'm okay with it. I mean, you would like to have it come from the person themselves, but sometimes it's like it's like an intervention type situation, you know? So maybe this is like, maybe he's tried and he's just like, you know, I've got no other course of action. Like I need to, I need to, you know, solicit help to let him commence his healing journey. So that's my take on it. But isn't the whole thing with addiction, like the person has to want to change? No, you gotta, you gotta trap them and yell at them and say, (laughs) you better change. It's an intervention. Okay, good. Okay. Glad we settled that. Okay. Well then with that, we did post this on our Instagram. We got some interesting responses. This is not necessarily a penance. It was just a good comment. I thought from Papa Splinter or Papa. Yeah, I think it's Papa Splinter and referencing the, uh, the person that our, that our narrator is talking about, he said, good bloke, supporting the surf industry without crowding the lineup. And, I mean... So good. He's not wrong. So, just... <laughs> <laughs> very clever, Papa. Very clever. I flagged that one as well. I was like, that's well played. <laughs> uh, in terms of a penance, one that was a bit more in line with that was he has to bring a coffin of four boards everywhere he goes until he has surf with you. His friend, a Amim- a minimum of 15 times. That is from an Instagram handle that, uh, oh, tongue twister for me. It's, it's spelt one way in the handle, another way in the written bio. I'm going to go Juiciest Lawson. Uh, shout out Juiciest Lawson. However the fuck I'm butchering that. Um, I like that. I think a rule of thumb for life, at least one that I kind of live by, is surfboards only go on the roof of the car if there is no other potential option no matter what you have to explore every ever option before putting anything on the roof of the car um and that i can't tell you the last time i've done it actually other than like a coffin board back situation like having to put like even with like a 9-0 or something i've never had to had to do that and so having to bring a coffin of four boards everywhere presumably on the roof um that's that's so fitting for what he's done to himself too it's it's such a fitting penance so i really like it i am gonna go a little bit of a different route but shout out because that's um that's really just taking it's almost like you know we used to be hunter gatherers and then we started acquiring all this stuff it's almost just like a crude slap you in the face reminder of how much shit you have like if you had to actually take all your stuff that you've acquired and go from point a to point b all the time uh you'd realize you don't need that much stuff it's fucking annoying so to make this guy do that on a smaller scale with all the boards he's bought uh, i like it a lot okay all right well do you want to do your penance or should i do mine i'll just rip in i'll go um this is a recurring one for me this this penance but it's recurring for a reason i think it's very powerful medicine and this guy's got to heal himself with a tarantula hmm Everybody knows the globally accepted standard accepted by both the IOC and the UN, uh, as well as the World Health Organization, shout out Barton Lynch, um, is one surf, nice work, you know, well done, but no name awarded. Two surf, Tommy. Three surf, Tony. Four surf, Terry. Five surf, Tarantula. So that's how you work your way through the names that you've earned, given on how many times you've surfed in one single day. Each session, each session has to be either an hour or feature 10 waves. Um, when you get to five, you become a tarantula. You morph. And so that's my healing medicine for him. Um, is the goal there to like just remind him of how much he loves surfing or to just put him in a bit of physical pain? Put him in physical pain, really. Yeah. I mean, you don't really love it by the end. 
unless the waves are really good, which it's almost like sillier to do when it's really good because when it's really good, it's probably only good for like a few hours at a time. You want to mac- maximize that rather than like drag it out into five different sessions. So I recommend not doing it on a firing day because you might, you know, be like, oh, I'm going to get out when it's like getting into its peak because I need to rest and surf another hour later. Um, so do it in fun waves, I'd say. And yeah, it's more about the pain and suffering than about the pleasure. Um, but through pain and suffering, he's going to prove to himself because I think he's got some, you know, I don't think he's just not surfing because he doesn't feel like it. I think he needs to just remind himself that, um, you know, he can just put himself, even when he doesn't feel like if it's a little rainy, it doesn't do this. Like he has to just remind himself that he's still got that punch in him. And um, that you dog, know, nothing punches like a tarantula. Okay. All right. Well, so you referenced firing waves. His friend made it seem like he doesn't even like surfing firing waves, which leads me to believe that he might be scared potentially. Like, I think that's kind of what his friend was alluding to is he's a bit of a wuss. Uh, so what I want him to do is that every time that you miss a good swell that you could have easily surfed, you know, you obviously, if you have some whatever obligation that makes it impossible, it doesn't count. But if you have an opportunity where the waves are pumping and you basically choose not to surf, you need to give away a board every single time that you do this uh, to someone who can actually use it. And that means physically going down to the beach during the swell and handing it to someone in the parking lot. And you can choose whether or not you want to explain why you're doing it, but you're going to have to give away one of these fresh white boards. And the trick here for me is that he'll never actually give a board away because he'll be like, no, wait, why would I give a board away when I can just paddle out and go surf these pumping waves? So I think it's going to basically trick him into adopting better habits. And in the worst case where he does choose to do it, then at least those boards are going to get used properly. I don't know, man. I think Feral Dan's going to hear this and figure out where this guy lives and just show up in the parking lot and just be like, just start feeding him like, oh man, it's pretty heavy out there. Like a guy got sent to the hospital just before and just Feral Dan's going to get in his head and the guy will be like, you know what? You like this board? And Feral Dan's just going to, it'll be the, it'll be the day, the big day for Feral Dan. So shout out Feral Dan. All right. Well, those are our penances. Uh, You can choose which one you want to pursue, but Please send us uh, some proof of your penance being paid and you will be absolved of your sin. Go heal. And um, I, that guy definitely has a Surfline account, so he's not getting my dad's account. And uh, heal up and fuck yourself. Now that we've covered this week's industry and cultural news, we're going into the competitions. J-Bay just ended. We've got Stacy here and we're going to be breaking down everything that happened this past week. And... Unfortunately, how I lost a lot of money. Let's get into it. Yeah, well, we did still have, obviously, some winners and some losers of this event. So Felipe Toledo convincingly took out the men's side over Ethan Ewing in the final. Then we had uh, Lakey Peterson with her first win in, I believe, four years on the CT. She got the win over Molly Picklum in a really strange final. I'm sure you didn't get to watch that one, Stacey, with the time zone, but it was very... Basically, neither of them made a wave for the first 20 minutes. They took off on like 15 waves and just couldn't make it. And then toward the back end of the heat, they they kind of found their rhythm a bit. But yeah, that's how we're looking. So I'm going to give a little rundown, if you don't mind, of the top five men and women, and we can chat a little bit about that. So on the men's side, Felipe's in first, obviously. Um, He's pretty much in a position where, well, first and foremost, um, he's qualified for the final five, guaranteed. He's also, if my math is correct, pretty much locked in to hold on to the number one spot going into lowers, unless Ethan or Griffin wins chopes and felipe gets dead last so he's looking really good there uh so ethan has also qualified for the top five he's number two right now he jumped griffin by just a a hair griffin's number three he's also qualified for the top five now coming into fourth place we have joao chianca who's holding on for dear life um he is not qualified for the top five but the way that the numbers are set up, I'm going to say that he's still going to be safe. I called that maybe four or five events ago, and I still am holding by that. Yagodora is barely hanging on to number five. He has got Gabriel Medina in sixth, John Florence in seventh, Jack Robinson in eighth, all within 3,000 points of him, which has got to be terrifying, especially going into an event where all three of those guys are spectacular surfers. 
each of those um, guys, Gab, John, and Jack, would basically have to beat Yago by one or two positions, depending on where they fall. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. And then sort of outside chances are Leo Fioravanti, Ryan Callanan, and Connor O'Leary to get into the final five. But they would basically, Ryan and Connor would need to basically win. Uh, and Yago and the other guys would have to do really badly. And Leo would also need to basically win or get second place and other have other people do poorly. So uh, chances of them getting in are not very high. But Stacy, how do you feel about the men situation right now? Yeah, I think Yago's going to be sweet. I, I know it's tight, but he's not a slouch out there at all. But it's going to be entertaining because that chasing pack is as strong as as it could get. It couldn't get any gnarly. I think that's the three best guys out there. And then, you know, ahead of him is a, is a pretty decent gap to Jow. And Jow's also amazing, you know, going to be amazing out there as well. So, yeah, crazy race for that final final position in the top five there. So it's going to be uh, going to be exciting to watch. True. But Joao's also really good out there. And I'm sure, like, Yago's great out there too. So all these guys can perform it's just a matter of who's going to do it when it counts so that's what it's looking like on the men's side on the women's we have carissa moore holding on to first place she's locked in for the final five actually that happened in brazil so that's not even news tyler wright has also locked in her spot for the final five she's in second caroline marks holding on to number three she's also locked for the final five and molly Picklum with a final finish here she's in number four she has also cemented herself a spot at lowers now Katie Simmers did not have a great event by any standards. Um, she is still holding on to fifth place, but she's got Lakey, 3,120 points behind her. Steph, 4,900 points behind her. And Tati, I did the math, Tati would need to win and Katie would have to get last for Tati to have a chance to get into the top five. So Lakey obviously just had a big win. That has got to feel really good. She's probably got a lot of confidence. We know that she charges, like she'll go. How would you feel right now if you're Katie with, you know, Lakey right there and then Steph a little bit further behind? Oh, look, uh, small Tahiti. I think that you could definitely be worried about Lakey. Like her backhand is incredible. And, and when Chopes is small and, and south, it's such a fun little running kind of left point. You know, it's not what you go there for, but plenty of heats get run out there when it's like that. And um, I, I think Lakey's... Definitely one to watch at that size. Um, but if it's sort of classic chopes, you know, four to six foot, bit of west, some barrels, I, I think where Katie's sitting right now, she'd have to be feeling really confident. Um, I, I think she might be the most skilled out of those three if the conditions get like that. All right. Well, this is something that Stace and I will break down in further detail before the Chopo event, which happens sometime in August. So we've got a couple weeks off. We've got the U.S. Open coming up next week. So that's one to keep an eye on and the uh, Challenger Series. But for now, going back to J-Bay, we're going to do, first of all, some come-ups. Give the man an esky, Philippe Toledo. He just wakes up with nine six threes in his scoreline. Nine nine three is even. You mentioned earlier that I might have not copped all of the uh, copped all of the heats. You're wrong, Mikey. I stayed up till one o'clock both nights, just absolutely frothing. And Philippe Toledo, Philippe Toledo was the you know the main the main holder of that froth for me. He's just man. He, he's honestly like so so exciting to watch. Um, and uh, you know. I'm, uh, you know, stoked to see him on top. He's a yeah, deserving, deserving champion. I know we both picked Ethan, and you know, I think at a bigger size, that the the difference in those two gets, you know, a little bit removed. But at that size, yeah, Philippe is untouchable. That was actually crazy to me because we've obviously talked so highly about Ethan's rail work and just how beautifully he surfs, and and he did. He surfed well in this event, well enough to make it to the final. But I don't think even for him, he feels like he ever really got going like he only had one excellent heat total felipe had three but his other two heats were in the 15 point range so that that could have easily been all five of his heats in in the excellent range and his surfing was just clearly a gear maybe even two gears better than anybody else including ethan he was going that much faster he was turning that much harder like every turn he put so much into and still he keeps himself going down the line somehow uh it just this was an event where there was a surfer who was so clearly superior than every other person in the draw. And this comes off the back of, you know, him having a couple events where he was showing injuries. You know, in Brazil, he hurt his knee. In El Salvador, his back was hurting. 
um, I actually lost a bit of faith in him. So I, I thought that he was going to struggle a bit in J-Bay with the knee situation just because of how hard you have to push and how fast you have to go. But he just powered through it. So, yeah, Felipe Toledo, round of applause. What a remarkable athlete as well to be able to, and this is not just the first time for Felipe, but his highest heat score was in the final. Like, he is just, he's remarkable, you know. Um, he really knows how to turn it on, and, yeah, what what an entertainer. But what about you, Mikey? Any any come-ups? Oh, my God. Jack Robinson winning that paddle battle. I was like, even though, obviously, Felipe was surfing at a different level, I was, like, borderline surprised he didn't win the contest after that because just the confidence that that would instill in a person. If you haven't seen this, you can go check out the abbreviated version on Stab's Instagram, or you can watch the full version on the website. It's in the Elsewhere section. But basically what happened was Jack... Uh, was riding a wave and he finished right next to Leo. So Leo was already paddling out. Leo was on the wave prior. Jack kicks out of his wave, pops up right next to Leo, and he's basically on Leo's heels, like literally paddling on top of him. And it's basically the start of this paddle battle between the two all the way back up the point, which is such a long paddle, um, even with these guys who are, you know, the fittest people on earth. And the, it basically starts with Jack trying to get around Leo and this little wave comes and Jack goes over it and Leo goes under it and Leo gains like 10 feet on Jack somehow, which first was like pretty surprising and amazing to me because I've always kind of been curious about whether what's the best go on that. Like when you got a little wave that's not quite breaking, but it's kind of feathering, like should you do the little duck dive or should you go over it? Turns out you should do the duck dive, guaranteed, scientifically proven. So then Leo gets this, you'd have to say like a 15 foot lead on Jack. And it looks like it, the paddle battle's over. At that point, in any other paddle battle that I've ever seen between two equal competitors, it's like the other guy kind of just even gives up because it's like, what's the point? And then I don't know what happens, but Jack just flips into this gear and just starts motoring. And when you watch the clip back, especially the drone vision, it's so wild. His arms are moving faster. He's like just displacing so much more water and every stroke that he's taking, he's basically getting the distance of two strokes of Leo. And he just flies past him at this pace that he, again, he's going against somebody that's the same size on roughly the same size board and Leo trains like day in and day out. So it's not as if he's, you know, out of shape. Um, I don't exactly know what to attribute it to. Pete Mel mentioned that it could have been a breath thing. And that Jack, when he got behind, he was actually just loading up on oxygen so that he could explode past Leo. Um, I want to actually ask Jack about it. And I also want to ask Leo about it because after I saw that, I was like, there's no chance that Leo wins this heat. After somebody comes from behind in a paddle battle like that and just breezes past you, your confidence has got to be in the fucking ground. So that to me was like the wildest moment of the entire I think uh, one or two shoulder reconstructions will have something to do with that as well. Like Leo's body is fucking sewn together. Mm, I hadn't considered that. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's um, certainly like shoulders and ankles. They never really go back to being 100%. Um, so I, I think that would have definitely something to do with it. And uh, the, the other thing too is that Jack in the water is like a fucking, I don't know, like a water dragon or something. He's just like... But so is Leo's fucking gnarly too. Like I've surfed with Leo. Nah, Leo's Leo's like kind of chippy. Jack's in the water like a crocodile. Like it's yeah. They're, they're both incredible athletes, and like it's, it's a really it's a really interesting case study because Jack did everything in his power to not win that with his like tactical decision makings about which routes to paddle, like you mentioned. Yeah. And he was so far behind. It's like okay, well, okay, you've just you've had a bit of a shocker there. But I don't know. Maybe the little shocker of him paddling over the wave instead of going under just gave him like the Super Saiyan Goku strength to um, mow him down. Yeah, I, that was seriously one of the most, that was the most impressive thing I've seen all year and the most exciting thing I've seen all year because <laughs> remember, I missed most of the surfing. So, uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think there is always something though to to engage in, in, in a moment like that, whether you're going to win or not. Um, I've mentioned it before, but it, it, in such a long paddle like that, you might not even win. Obviously, Jack won and there's crazy theater around it, but if your fitness level is at a level where you can do that and then a set arrive at the top of the point and you can still perform to your very best, you should definitely be pushing the other guy or girl to their absolute limit because they might they might beat you in the paddle battle. They might get priority. But if a wave comes straight away, they're, 
they're going to, A, probably make a shit decision, and B, not surf the wave that good. So, yeah, kids, never give up in a paddle battle. All right, let's get into some letdowns. I've got to be honest, Mikey, I don't have too many letdowns. I was, I was pretty entertained the, uh, the, the whole event. Anything stand out to you? Uh, a couple things. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a letdown necessarily, but I feel pretty bad for him, dude. What happened to Italo and his knee? Oh, my God. That is like my worst nightmare. I feel physical pain when I watch that video. That was that was wild. He got so folded. Poor guy. And the craziest thing is, he's somehow like okay. We got an update a day after saying that he didn't tear any ligaments in his knee. And then we just talked to his team today and found out that he's not going to be competing in Tahiti, but he will apparently be back in the water by the end of August. So... Best of luck to Italo in his recovery. Really glad to hear that it is not as serious as it looked because that looked absolutely brutal. And another letdown for me, it's the heat analyzer, Stacy. For people who are on a bad time zone, we rely on the heat analyzer to get through the day. I hate watching the highlight videos. I just it, it does nothing for me. You have no context, but watching the heat analyzers, you can actually figure out what's going on. Ever since Elo's been fired, heat analyzer's gone away. It's a travesty. WSL, please hire Elo back just to do his heat analyzers. You don't. He doesn't need to lead the company. Just get him on the tools. We need somebody uploading these things on a regular basis. Please. Well, it's clearly not his. Uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Sterling Howland's IP. So Elo can definitely not have taken that with him. <laughs> no, I just think he was the one that was doing the uploads. And since he's left the building, it's not happening anymore. No, well, I was kind of thinking maybe he he kind of thought he might have owned it and just took taken it with him like he like a toy or something. I'm I'm going and I'm taking that with me. <laughs> well, if, if whatever we got to do, let's get it back. You think he was doing the manual labor? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. That's the only explanation. Nine minutes could do the whole day, in my opinion. Not one heat. Like, they're just too long. Yeah, exactly. All right. So anyway, that brings us to our next segment, um, which is hard for me to discern because I wasn't able to go through the heat analyzer, but the blind mice. Oh, I have plenty, 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 plenty. I think that uh, it would be impossible to uh, start anywhere else but Conor O'Leary v. John John. Hmm. Um, did you get to watch a replay of that by any chance? Okay, so no, but what I did do is I actually came into that, I woke up into that heat like halfway through. So I didn't see both of their best waves, like John's nine and Connor's high eight, but I watched the end of the heat. And most importantly, I watched both of their last waves and I have some some controversial thoughts, but I'm going to let you speak first. Well, firstly, there's a lot of comments online. Oh, Connor's coach didn't think he got it. Um, Connor didn't think he got it. Like these guys just know there's a camera around. As soon as there's no camera around, they walk inside and break it down. And 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 and, and no, you know, they'll 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 have an opinion of it then. Like you can never take a coach or an athlete's opinion on a score. Like that is not <laughs> that is not the uh, the formula to, to dictate a heat. So let's just clear that one out of the way. Secondly, if you do listen closely enough, Dog Marsh. He did say there's no way John's first wave is the best wave of the day, which I, I have to kind of agree with. Like a 9-2-3 for what was going down out there on that day for how pumping it was did seem a little inflated. So I think that that's where the problem in the heat starts there. It's like they've gone pretty high on that. I think they've overcompensated back at the back end, but I'm still, I actually don't know who won that heat. It was a very, very hard heat to score. I'll, I'll give them that. Okay, well, here's what I want to say. So watching the last two waves of each of them, I think we talked about this before. You mentioned how John obviously needs a certain wave height to really show his best surfing. And I think that the waves in the good day were like starting to get into that range, but we're still not quite there. And to me, he was doing surfing that was suited to a bigger wave where the turns are sort of like wider and longer. But they just he wasn't getting the same sort of like spice in these waves that like kind of required it because they weren't, they weren't at that super, super tall point where you can just drive your rail like, and just rely on those like long sweeping arcs. So I think on that last wave, when I watch it, like John surfing to me, it's just not really quite tight and angular enough versus Connor's going up and down through the lip fins going out the back. I think it's actually a lot, harder doing what Connor did on his last wave than what John was doing on his last wave. So I think that 
again, I, I didn't get to see the first two waves of the Heat, so maybe there was some compensation going on with the judges in, in terms of how they scored the last ones. But to me, watching their last two waves, I actually think the judges might have gotten it right. I think it's a little bit harder to do that really tight in the pocket, through the lip, fins going out the back surfing, than John's on, on that style of wave. So... Yeah, I guess that's kind of where I stand on it. I think John surfing like is amazing, but I don't think at this stage he really is creating the angles that are required to do top level surfing in small to medium sized waves. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he did have a pretty strong wave on his first day where it was a small one. He did huge air on his first turn. Like that was kind of the John that we, we want to see, and I think it's there. He just needs to unlock it a, a bit more often. I think that's the that's what really needs, needs to happen and. He's obviously got the talent in spades. We know that. It's just a matter of just doing it in the, in the 30 minutes, which he definitely did. Like, he had a great heat. Um, I, I just think Connor was on, on better waves, which is on the tour. That's what it comes down to. Like, you do need to be on the better waves uh, and, and do shit-hot surfing, which both of them did. Uh, the other one for me, um, which I think was a lot easier of a heat to score, was Gabriel Medina and Ryan Callanan, like... Man, they they got the result right in that heat, but they had no idea what surfing they wanted to see or what surfing they wanted to score, and it was it was kind of confusing to say the least. Like, you know, two goofy footers riding four scoring waves. I, I think there should be a clear point of difference in what you want to see and and how you kind of score it. And to have all the scores like within half a point of one another to me just didn't seem just didn't seem right. You know, there was. The, there was there was a lot of good surfing in that heat, and I think that you know when you see it, like you have to reward it. And I think that you know Gabriel and Ryan have one wave each that is so clearly better than their other waves, uh, yet they all end up with like eight six, eight six three, eight eight. Like you know what I mean? And just you just don't have to make your job that hard. I don't think. Hmm. Have some conviction, judges. I didn't get to see that heat, so I can't comment on it. But I do have one more. Uh, well, you sent me a clip, first of all, from the Steph and Molly quarterfinal, I believe it was, and, you know, showing a difference between their two waves. And to me, the, the level of surfing that Steph is doing just from like a technical aspect is so much better and so much harder than what Molly's doing. Molly's making it look a little bit harder because of, you know, her style and technique is not quite as refined as Steph's. And it seems like the judges are actually like giving that credit. And I think that they're missing the point on that. And then I think, I mean, I hate to say this because, you know, obviously she's doing really well this year. She's number four in the world and she's had a lot of really, really good performances and results. But I think that Molly's surfing has been kind of juiced all year a little bit. Like to me, there's just a few things in there that I, I don't think are quite at the same level as the other women. And her 7-5 in the final, I think, is a really good example of that. She took off on what was definitely a really good wave. But she did two turns, neither of which were particularly committed. And it seemed like they were literally just scoring the quality of the wave. Like, she even surfed a wave right after it, like kind of on her way back out, where she did this big finishing turn. And you could see she was more excited about that than the 7.5. And she ended up getting a 6 on that one, which was just so much harder than what she did on the 7.5. And I don't know, I just, I don't know. Every season, there there seems to be a couple surfers that the judges really seem to be liking their surfing and this year it's i think molly on the women's side but yeah i just i think there are a few calls in there that are pretty questionable so i'm throwing it in the blind mice yeah no i like it and i think that's the that is the key to being successful on the tour is learning how to reinvent yourself every single year and you don't have to go completely mad and, and change your whole setup but you do have to come back to the tour every year with a couple of new turns or some new angles or some up skills in in other areas and when you have a year like Molly, which she is having a fantastic year, she's going to come into... I know it's a long way down the track, but she's going to have to come into 2024 with, with I think, a, a fair bit of new spark there just because I, I, I'd i have to be with you on a few of those scores. You're kind of watching them going, okay, where where does the bulk of that number come from? And I think the Heat v. Steph's a great example. Um, there's, there's, turns that, there's turns that are hard and there's turns that look hard. And there, there is a difference. And I think that, you know... I think we know what's going on there. All right. So now it's time to get into my favorite slash least favorite section, Gamble Ramble. Swings and roundabouts, Mikey, but never fear. You had such a big swing in Brazil that the roundabout will not throw you off course for Tahiti, my friend, but you did get absolutely pummeled. Let's hear about it. 
Well, I went down $968 in JBay. I got fucking obliterated. I made pretty much every wrong decision. Um, I Yeah, I was really holding on to hope that uh, Ethan or Carissa or Steph would win in finals day, and that would sort of save me a bit, but they obviously didn't. And in between that, I, I made pretty much all the wrong calls and all the heats. I'm going to blame it on not being able to watch it. Um, <laughs> that's going to be my excuse this time around. So, yeah, I guess going into Tahiti, the good thing is we're still up $4,251 on the season. So all is not lost. Uh, but, yeah, going into Tahiti, I'm going to try to wash this one off and start anew. Oh, you sound like you're doing a post interview, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, I got fucked. It's true. Um, I don't... <laughs> I don't even know what to chalk it up to, to be honest. Like, obviously, every time you're you're making a bet, you're weighing, one, who you think is actually going to win, and then within that, you're weighing the odds and if it makes sense to bet. Like, am I picking the person who I think in my soul is going to win the heat every time? No, absolutely not, because there's, there's numbers that you need to consider. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you could take Carissa Moore at minus 600 over Sarah Baum, like she's probably going to win. But those odds are so shit. You'd have to put up $600 just to make 100 versus you put $20 on Sarah and you can win 120 if she wins. You know what I mean? So I think I made a few of those uh, those wrong calls. But even when I went with the person who was the favorite, like for instance, I put $200 on Molly in the final. And then I just, you know, you, <laughs> you can't win them all. That's what it comes down to in betting. They also say that the house always wins. But that hasn't been proven true in my case yet. So we're still up. We're going into Tahiti and hopefully coming on a winner end of 2023. Yeah, you're on fire. Yeah. Overall, you're on fire. You needed a hit. I I like the fact you've had a hit at this point in the season. I I think that it's, you know, everyone's due for a slip. And uh, you've had that now. Now you're going to come home raring to go, Mikey. So I'm looking forward to it. All right, Stacey. I think that's it for this episode of the Drop Competition Edition. Uh, but we'll be back maybe next week to talk about the U.S. Open and then in a couple weeks to talk about Chopu as well. So with that, anything else before we go? No, great to catch up, mate. Have a good week. All right. Chat soon. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Drop. If you have a surf sin of your own, send them to michael at stabbank.com or bucketstabbank.com. Make them 60 seconds or less filmed vertically on an iPhone, and if you get selected, you will be posted on Stab's Instagram and this podcast, and most importantly, you will get a free year of Stab Premium. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Drop. It's a huge week in surfing, but there's a lot more to come. So, until next week, over and out.